is the One God Salvation Series. Uh, there's clipboards, paper, pens, if you'd like to take notes. Um, we'll also have a PowerPoint presentation and uh, plenty of scriptures to go over. We'll start with prayer uh, and for offering. Brother Ash will be taking up offering um, after, we, after we're done praying, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this time of fellowship this time that we can come before your presence, this time we can come and hear your word, the breaking of the bread, that we might have life and that life more abundantly. As we prepare for this series, I ask you to cover each of the sessions that are going on, the speakers and those in attendance, that you, God, will bless the offerings that are given within each of these services, God, for the furtherance of the gospel, that your name, God, might be exalted in the heavens and the earth. And I ask you with each of these series that you would touch the lips of every speaker, that you would anoint us to speak your word with boldness and without fear or favor. In like manner that you'd put a watch where we need to hold our peace, that just your word comes forth and nothing more and nothing less. Lord, in all things, we'll be careful to give you glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Thank you, Brother Ash. Our opening text, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Through five, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Let's start where we left off last week. We had talked about the great commandment, St. Mark chapter 22, verse 28 through 33. Uh, does anyone need week one notes? Because it'll be page 14 of week one notes. Okay. If anyone does need week one notes, there's a stack of them there on the, on the counter, the ledge in the back. Um, I didn't hear you, Brother Gary. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, you're good. Sorry the delay. Uh, but anyway, week one notes are back there if anyone would like them. Um, if you do pull them up or, or get there, just go to page 14, and that's where we're going to start off. In discussing the great commandment from St. Mark chapter 22, verse 28 to 33, the text in St. Mark comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee 
shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. The diligence of these very texts is everywhere you go, it is perpetually teaching the word of God. You know, the world has a high calling and cost. What can it do to pull to its own belief structure, its own religions and things like that? And just as you begin driving a car, the more you drive it, the more proficient you become. It becomes second nature. You don't have to guess when you walk in the room where to flip the light switch on because out of repetitive motion, you know where the light switch is. You know where the keys are and how they go in the car. You know that because that repetitive nature. This same repetitive nature is what God was teaching. He says, for your family, you must teach them diligently. Teach it when you talk and sit in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them upon your hands. they got to be frontlets before your eyes, upon the post of your house, that every single thing in our lives is bound into the great commandment, that we might know God is one and that we might love him with everything we are. That makes sense so far? The Lord in his wisdom knew many strange doctrines would come, and that men and women alike whose hearts were darkened with vanity and pride would teach another way and another gospel and another doctrine that is not truth. So bear with me as we read a few warnings from God, warnings to guard this truth for your sake and for the sake of your heritage, your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. Because, folks, it's, it's with us. What we do today makes a difference on what our kids are going to do tomorrow and what their kids are going to do in 30 years and our great-grandkids are going to do in 50 years. It starts with us. So bear with me as we read a few things, warnings from God. In the Old Testament, they, you know, they stood for hours to hear the word of God. But it seems each generation would kind of grow more into multitasking and looking for cliff notes. But we're not going to do cliff notes here. We're going to get diligent into the word. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. It's a, a mighty list here, isn't it? Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, 
having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins led away with divers lust divers means various ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth second timothy chapter 2 verse 16 to 18 but shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase unto more ungodliness and their word will eat as doth a canker in whom is Hymenius and Philetus, in who concerning the truth have erred, saying the resurrection is already past and overthrow the faith of some. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 16, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. The wis this witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and the commandments of men that turn from the truth, under the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in, good but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. And the last one, Titus chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is the heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he which is subverteth sinneth and being condemneth of himself. That's a lot of list of warnings from God. And I felt in the Holy Ghost just to give those few samples because God wants his church to stay grounded and settled in the truth. His truth, his doctrine, which cannot waver at any time. So in continuing Deuteronomy chapter 6, that diligence of chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, in teaching your family that first, above all things, God is one, establishes in the hearts of your family that there is only one God and none else. And when the world sees world or some slippery, smooth-talking serpent comes around, then your family, your kids, will be quickened of the Holy Ghost, and they can rebuke that lying spirit without delay or fear or favor. So hear the word of God. Some are too kind and politically correct with false doctrine and the sowing of discord. But if God declares in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, them that sin, rebuke before all, that others may fear how much greater should the unclean who so discord and false doctrines be rebuked before all? While we cannot uproot these tares, lest wheat be uprooted, St. Matthew chapter 13, we can and must stand for the truth of God, allowing no place for the weak or new convert to beguiled through their subtlety or their delusional confidence. They are seducers. Furthermore, regarding Deuteronomy chapter 6, everyone say, God's talking to me. We, okay? We must diligently teach our families to love God 
with everything we are, both physically and spiritually. Lest our children grow up as a generation who know not God and turn aside to another gospel and doctrine that is not truth. Brother Gary, can you put Deuteronomy 6 and 4 back up there, please? Before we get to the place of God getting into verse 5 that says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, he makes the important statement, and that is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So before we can ever get to the place of loving God, God sets the precedence of understanding. Above all things, you must understand God is one and Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, with all thy strength. Does that make sense? There's an order there that without understanding and knowing God alone is one. There is none else. Then the latter has no bearing and meaning because we must have that first understanding. So just a few questions before we move forward. How many parents are in the house? That's a good representation. The rest are going to be future parents. Praise God by the grace of God. So a few questions. Do you want your children to stay in the truth now and when they become adults and all the days of their life? Do you want your children to go to heaven? Then your children must have the truth of God perpetually sown in them now. Do you want your grandchildren to be in and stay in the truth all the days of their life? then your children must have this perpetually sown in them now so that they pass it on to the next generation. It starts with us. Do you want your great-great-grandchildren to know God is one and that they must love God with every fiber of their being? Then your children must have this perpetually sown in them now so that it diligently flows from generation to generation to generation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And thinking about this while you're walking by the way and when you're coming in the house and when you're going out and every time God reveals another scripture, there's another one that confirms God is one. Here's another one that confirms the love of God that you're perpetually sharing and talking about those things with your family so that forever the word of God is sown in them. The buck stops with us, brothers and sisters, to be a last generation Pentecostal or blaze a trail that flourishes for decades and centuries to come in your heritage and your family name. We'll continue talking about love and relationship in this series, but first let's move forward just a little bit. When we think of salvation in the realms of relationship, can anyone be in love with whom they've never met? There has to be some type of meeting, right? And can any read the word of God and understand lest they have met the author of the book, the author of eternal life? And how can they meet God without an introduction? Jacob met God as he wrestled with the angel in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob means heel catcher or supplanter. He was known as a deceiver.
Yeah, yeah, because we transitioned. We finished last week's, and we're going into week two. Sorry. I thought everyone heard that at the beginning. Praise God. Go to week two, page two. Sorry. Man, I'm just trying to flow. Are we ready? Okay, okay. When we think of salvation, realms of relationship, can any be in love with whom they have never met? And how can they read the word of God and understand lest they have met the author of the book, the author of life eternal? There's got to be an introduction there. We think about Jacob. He wrestled with the angel, Genesis chapter 32. Jacob means heel catcher and supplanter. He was known as a deceiver, but God changed his name to Israel, which means he will rule as God. And by Jacob was established the 12 tribes of Israel, the church, even as we know it today. Each tribe having a specific calling, election, and purpose in the church, in the earth, and in the heaven. Twelve gates in heaven having the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, each gate having purpose and destiny. Here at Truth, this is why we do first steps to help you know what tribe you belong to. If you know what your calling and election is, if you know your purpose in the church, it helps you, one, to grab a hold of that calling and election and to do it with all your heart. First Steps helps you come to that place of understanding why you're inclined to do what you do and what the proper place, tribe-wise, it is for you in the church. Okay, If you're a brother Jeff, like he was, that would have been the tribe of Judah. Okay? Does that make sense? Levites, the priesthood, each tribe has a purpose and a calling within the church. Saul's, <coughs> excuse me, Saul's introduction to God was when the light shone from heaven in Acts chapter 9. Now Saul was a learned man who knew the scripture, but had not met the God of the scripture. He could quote the scripture and convince all he spoke to. He knew the word so well that he manipulated the scripture to convince men so that he could persecute Christians, casting them in prison, afflicting them. That was until light came, knocking him off his high horse. And after being introduced to God, his life was forever changed. He received a name and character change. From Saul to Paul. By Paul came most of the epistles of the New Testament. Name change is prevalent in the word. Abram, meaning high father, was changed by God to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude, Genesis chapter 17. Sarai means dominative. She liked to be in control. She was changed to Sarah, meaning noble, princess, queen, Genesis chapter 17. The changing of names is not a new thing. For when a woman gets married, she takes on the, hus the name of her husband, right? Leaving father and mother, the husband and wife become one. In the natural, with relationship and marriage, comes a name change and a character change. We talked about this last week. The transformation where you're transformed to the desires, wants, and needs of the one that you love. In salvation, this happens on a deeper level than anything that could be experienced in marriage. That's to say in the natural, in the flesh. And we'll talk more about name change in the Bible as we progress through the series. For now, let's... Let's move forward. Some ask, how can I know God is real? Where did God come from? What did people, what did God do before he created the worlds in each of us? And some say, well, prove God's real. Show me his hands and his feet. 
Let's discuss the question that's often asked, how can I know God is real? You know, for those who have already met God, being born of water and of the Spirit, St. John chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, this is simple. They know, about, they know without the shadow of doubt, for they have God residing in their heart through their obedience and works of righteousness to follow the plan of salvation without wavering. Faith without works is dead. James chapter 2, verse 1, 14 through 26. But to those who have not met God, or maybe they have not gotten to the level of intimacy with the Lord. Have you ever looked up to the heavens, the sky, clouds, stars, and you just know there is something greater than you out there? Something that made all that is. Can anyone relate to that? This is one of the natural proofs God puts in each of us. An awe for what God has created. Artists spend their lifetime trying to paint and recreate what God does perpetually in the twinkling of an eye. And if you watch the sky at sunset for just a short bit, you'll see a continual new masterpiece of God in the heavens and in the earth. Psalms chapter 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament sheweth his handiwork. Some may say, I see the beauty of creation and have that feeling that something greater is out there. But how can I know, really know, God is real? And this is not just hype or emotions or blind faith based on what man of religion says. Regarding believing, which can be defined as having some level of faith in something or someone, even faith in things that you cannot see with your own eyes or put your hands on, my question to you is, do you believe there are other planets and galaxies and solar systems out there? Do you believe that man landed on the moon or that the pictures of Mars are real? If yes, why do you believe these? Have you been to another planet to see and touch it for yourself? Have you visited another galaxy or solar system, maybe walked across the Milky Way, somewhere we have a picture of the Milky Way, to know it's real? I don't know where it's at. There it is. There's the Milky Way. Have you walked on the Milky Way that you know this is really real? It's not just an illusion or thoughts in your mind. Or did you learn of these in school from your parents or maybe read it in a book or an article or maybe heard it preached from the pulpit? We believe in things we cannot see all the times, all the time, without even realizing it. And the interesting thing is we put forth that faith and we believe in those things we can't see and we don't question it. If your parents tell you, don't do this because this is going to happen, you just simply trust your parents that they're going to lead you the right way. It's the same way when it comes through the pulpit, the man of God is trying to usher that word forth that you might be saved. Just as your parents are trying to usher forth what's needed that you might be saved. Is this okay so far? No. Do you believe there is air all around us? Oxygen. If yes, please show it to me so we can be placed in the hands and be held and maybe we can draw a picture of it. Maybe put it up on the wall. But is not oxygen invisible? Yet while you cannot see it, you can feel it all around you. While the wind blows, do not feel something brush against your flesh. So is it with God. If any dare to press close to God, desiring him above all that is, you will feel something brush against you, that which could be in you. St. John chapter 4, verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit 
and in truth. But what is a spirit? What does this mean? After Jesus rose from the grave, he met the disciples who were troubled seeing him. And they were terrified. They were scared. They saw him and they knew he was crucified. They knew he was dead. And here they're looking at him face to face like we're looking at each other. And they got scared. St. Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. While air is invisible, is it not very real and necessary to be healthy and to live? If you doubt this, try holding your breath for about 10 minutes. Okay? See what happens when you turn blue and you pass out. And by the grace of God, you regain consciousness. Then you can confess oxygen's real, air is real, and you've got to have it to live that you won't die. God is a spirit, not flesh and bones as each of us are, but he is very real. When you wave your hands through the air, just a simple wave, you are literally passing through the presence of God. He fills all time and space. And there is no place you can go that God is not there. You can go the highest mountain, the lowest valley. You can close the doors of your bedroom and no one can come in and God's in your bedroom. There's no place you can go that God doesn't fill the space and time. And what are the uniqueness of plants and trees and rocks? By these come O2, CO2, and H2O. On the screen is the oxygen cycle of Earth, which shows the complexity of the cycle of Earth combined with what is called photosynthesis. And that's our next slide, Brother Gary. Which is how oxygen is created. Our slide shows the process where green plants and trees use carbon dioxide, sunlight, and waters to create sugars. This process creates oxygen for people and animals to breathe. It's simple, right? Well, it's great that man has found and outlined these to be taught and understood. It's not a new thing. What we find looking back at creation, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree, also, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From the beginning, God gave Adam the breath of life and immediately put him in a place filled with what would create oxygen to breathe, food to eat and drink so he can live. Even with the flood upon the earth, Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, God made provision that trees and plants and seeds would not perish. Genesis chapter 7, verse 3. Of fowls also the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. Let's move forward to further prove God. Humanity has faith to turn on a light switch and expect the light to shine, but slow to believe that God spoke light to exist in creation. Some cleave to the abominations of horoscopes and reading of stars and dream catchers, but are slow to acknowledge that God created every star 
and all that's in the heavens. Genesis chapter 1, verse 16. History reveals in the days of Columbus, some men in their infinite wisdom declared the earth was flat. And venturing to the edge would result in falling off and maybe being eaten by dragons or some far-fetching thing. You know, men's imaginations are crazy. But we know the earth is round, not flat. And yet this knowledge did not originate from man, but came from God through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. It is he that sitteth on the circle of the earth. So well before Columbus's time, this was penned in the word of God. It just was established already. But did you know that the complete book of Isaiah, a 24-foot scroll, was found in 1947? The scroll dated more than 1,900 years old, and some studies say the Dead Sea Scrolls date between 200 years B.C. and to 2 to 300 years A.D. Simply put, before those of Columbus' time ever were, God had the prophet Isaiah pen that the world is a circle. It is not flat. Do we do the pictures? Yeah, there's the Dead Sea, and then after that's two of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Thank you, Brother Gary. And there's one more. Yeah. Archaeology reveals Abraham's name appears in Babylonian excavations at the very place the Word of God says he lived. His hometown, Ur of Chaldees, was found about 140 miles from Babylon. Medicine reveals until the 18th century, which was just a couple hundred years ago, that doctors would bleed patients to try and cure them of bad blood and sickness. Those, everyone knows George Washington? He died of being bled four times because he got a case of Quincy, which is laryngitis. But now doctors know you gotta give blood transfusions to bring life. If they had looked into the word of God, it's the blood that gives life. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Just as the human body must have blood for the soul, life in the body to continue to live, so is there a necessity for blood that the spirit might have life eternally. See the type and shadows, the natural and the spirit? It all flows in perfect harmony. These are just a few proofs that God and his word are very true and very real. But let's move forward to it's time for an introduction. You know, last week and this week talked about introduction, talked about relationship, and you got to, if you're going to get married, you got to meet, meet the sweetheart of your dreams. It's got to be that courting, that relationship, get to know each other, fall in love, and then walk down the aisle and make that eternal forever commitment death do you part, for better or for worse, for sickness and in health. Yeah, maybe this should have been a marriage seminar. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, starts with the first four words in the Bible, in the beginning, God. Well, the first three words of the Bible, in the beginning, have at least seven specific purposes. We'll talk about several of these in this series. Let's just think about God in the context of in the beginning. Who is God? When we look at the word God in the Hebrew, it comes from the word Elohim. And I believe we've got, yeah, we've got the definition up here. As well as you can see, the Hebrew word translation pronunciation 
And I hope that visual is good for everyone to see how that flows and how it's interpreted. So God in the Hebrew, H430 is designed as plural of H433, Hebrew 433, God's in the ordinary sense, but specifically used in the plural, thus especially with the article of the supreme God. This definition confuses those who have not received revelation from God of who he is and that there is only one God. And when they see any words that hint at plurality, then this leads to a conclusion that Jesus and God and the Holy Ghost are somehow not the exact same or there is some difference. It's the banana debate. Anyone ever heard the banana debate? Wow, I am so surprised. Trinitarians use that. There are three distinct and separate parts of the banana that make the whole. You know, you can split the banana. But if you ask those this process, what's the office and purpose of the first and second and third parts of the banana, it is wholly and fully one banana. It is consistently and thoroughly one banana. There is only one God. There is no plurality as far as multiple gods in heaven. When looking at Hebrew 4.30 and Hebrew 4.3.3, these must be looked at in proper context. And just as a recap, God, Hebrew 4.3.0 is used in Scripture for lowercase god and lowercase goddesses, magistrates and angels, and the supreme God. While Elohim can be used for many other texts in the Bible in relation to lowercase gods and plurality, of lowercase gods and goddesses. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Elohim is referring to the supreme God, the one and only God. Brother Text, this makes sense, but why does the Strong's Concordance say plural of Hebrew 4.3.3, gods in the ordinary sense, but specifically used in the plural, thus, especially with the article of the supreme God? This sounds like the research shows plurality of the supreme God. Our answer is moving forward in Scripture, but first let's look at a few other Scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. The questions come up often is who are the us and are God is talking about. And it should be known and clearly understood any and all seeming references to plurality in God, uppercase G, can be summed up in the seven spirits of God, which are simply the attributes of the one and only God Almighty. These are outlined in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's the seven spirits of God. Seven spirits of God are also discussed in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. And Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Another confirmation that the seven spirits of God are the us and are can be found in Proverbs chapter 8, which are the 
mentioned many, many times. Literally in creation, God was pulling from himself to create man. Spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Another confirmation of this is in the words image and likeness. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 again. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now we know God is a spirit. And a spirit, what? Hath not flesh and bones, right? He's not like us, like you and I. That's St. Luke chapter 24, verse 39. So when God made man, it was not referring to the visage or the physical appearance of man, but it was after the attributes of God. Why do you think man has wisdom? Why do you think man has intelligence? Why do you think man has fear? And if you don't have fear, stand out there when the lightning's hitting the ground. And you'll see the fear, and you'll see the hair stick up on your body and all that. God, when he created Adam, he created it with his attributes of who he is. And in the beginning, Adam wasn't, he was free of sin, a perfect man. What a thought. This is why Adam had such insight that he could give names to every living creature. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. So this brings some questions such as who created all that is? Webster defines creator. Do we have the Webster? Thank you, Brother Gary. Webster defines creator as one that creates by bringing something new, original into being, God. So even Webster knows creator means God. Okay? The one and only God, uppercase G. The scripture we just spoke of early reveals that God is the one and only creator and we also see the name the same in the following, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15. I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. The word Lord, L-O-R-D, comes from Hebrew 1961 means the self-existent or eternal Jehovah. The Jewish national name for God, Jehovah the Lord. That Hebrew 1961 is defined as to exist. And this word is Hagah, which is a very interesting word that you can find throughout the Bible. Hagah is also seen in a couple places, and here's a few scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The let there be, when you see that in creation, is that same Hebrew 1961, Hagah. So when you see Lord and let there be, it's the same Hebrew 1961. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent you. I am is the same, Hebrew 1961, the same word, Hayah, the Lord, to exist. It is clear in the Old Testament that God alone created all that is. <clears throat> but to be safe, let's look further. Maybe there's a doubting Thomas listening, St. John chapter 20. <clears throat> they need to put their finger in the nailed, scarred hands and thrust their hand in the wounded side of Jesus in order to believe. You know, some need that. They, they've got to get their hands bloody. Show me. Show me his hands and feet, and I'll believe. 
what faith that one has to get their hands bloody to believe Jesus is real. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 20, that you may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Once again, Lord, L-O-R-D, means Jehovah, the one and only God. And again, it's written Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 through 3, But then now thus saith the Lord, Lord that created thee, O Jacob, he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. This last text also declares that God, our Savior, God is our Savior, but isn't Jesus our Savior? Didn't Jesus shed his blood that we might live? Anyone ever heard that? That maybe Jesus shed some blood that we might live? We read earlier about the blood making an atonement for our souls. We're going to come back to the blood in this series, but let's move forward a little bit. Now, knowing that the Old Testament and New Testament have perfect harmony, for there is one author, God Almighty. There should be something in the New Testament that confirms this. There should be something that draws this. You know, an author of a book plans and prepares every word, every punctuation with specific purpose and meaning. There are no commas there by mistake. There are no periods by mistake. Uh, when someone writes a book, every single syllable, every consonant has a specific purpose and a specific meaning. And the Bible is, is so great of an example of this. Uh, there's not one word that's in place by mistake. We should find confirmation in the New Testament that God alone created everything so that it matches the Old Testament. We in agreement? Okay. If he's one God, he's a God who can't lie, this should be confirmed. We find in Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 to 17, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Whose blood is this? Jesus' blood. Even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him, by who? Jesus. We were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Is that pretty clear? There's no gray area there. Now, if the Lord, all uppercase Lord, Jehovah, God Almighty, one and only God, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, one God, if he created everything that is by himself, and he says, there's no one with me, there's no one beside me, and he says, no one helped me create all, this, all that is, then how is it possible for Jesus to create everything that is? 
Can a son or daughter create their father or mother that brought them in this world? If Jesus is not God Almighty, then how did he create everything that is visible and invisible and is not a spirit invisible and is not God a spirit? The one throne that is in heaven that God alone sits on, Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus created. God, who is a spirit, invisible, just as the Holy Ghost, St. John chapter 4, verse 24. Power, which means authority, jurisdiction, liberty, power, right, strength. Keeping in mind that all power belongs to God, Psalms chapter 62, verse 11. And if Jesus is before all things, and by him all things consist, then there could not have been any before Jesus. Does this make sense so far? This is why the book of Revelation starts with the word. Do we have, I don't have that one. Can you put Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, Brother Gary, please? Sorry about that. We live in a world with technical difficulties, and a battery died, but God knows. Genesis, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The entire book of Revelation, of, of revelation is about this one thing, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not plural, because when you look at the book of Revelation, it does not say revelations as in multiple revelations. But it's singular as in there is a revelation that God is trying to give his people. And it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, talking about to John, to shew unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel. This is what the book of Revelation, the intent is to establish that God is one, and here is what is coming, what it will show shortly come to pass. Is this okay so far? When we look further at cha in chapter 1, this revelation is clearly seen that Jesus is the one and only God Almighty. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 through 9, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake unto me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Is there any doubt that this is talking about Jesus? He that was alive and was dead, and behold, is alive forevermore. The description of what he looked like, all those attributes. Make sense so far? Some might ask, show me this in the Old Testament. There should be perfect harmony, and there always is. Glad you asked. Here's the Old Testament scripture that declares God is the first and the last. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. We see that, that same mode again and again in scripture there's no god beside me there's no savior beside me there's no one before me there's no one that will be after me and it all ties right back to deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 it's that thing god is trying to ingrain and ingrain just as a daddy and a mama they're teaching and teaching and teaching and that's what god is perpetually teaching and sowing into his people i'm one and there's none else God only wants us to be dependent and reliant upon him, that our faith is not grounded in ourselves or this world, but in a God who cannot fail. Who is our Savior? So just a quick rabbit trail. This will tie directly to what we're talking about. Earlier we looked at Isaiah chapter 43 that said God is our Savior. But did you know six times Titus speaks to the Savior in each chapter alternating saying God is our Savior? And Jesus is our Savior. Titus chapter 1, verse 3, God's our Savior. Verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Titus chapter 2, verse 10, God's our Savior. Verse 13, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Titus chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And verse 14, God, our Savior. It's a pretty consistent message. Uh, was Titus confused about who's our Savior? I don't think he was. He had a pretty clear understanding Jesus is God. He is our Savior. The Lord says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, Tell you, bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me? A just God and Savior, there is none beside me. Jesus is the Savior of the world, of all of us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God is our Savior. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. So can you answer, how many Saviors are there? One Savior. Let's look at the Old Testament again and find what God, what did God teach his people? Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10 through 13. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And there is no God formed. Uh, sorry, I got, I got lost on my page. But, uh, I am he before me there was no God formed neither shall there be after me 
I even I am the Lord and beside me there is no savior. I have declared and have saved and have shewed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? And again, it's confirmed in Hosea chapter 13, verse 4. He echoes the same thing. You know, God's always confirming his word. He always confirms Hosea 13, 14. Yet, yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Pretty clear still? What of how God is described? And what are the description of Jesus? When we read Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 and 15, talked about in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and go about the paps with a golden girdle, head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet like unto brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. And this was a description of Jesus. He that was alive and was dead, and behold, is alive forevermore. But when we go to Daniel, the Old Testament, in chapter 7, verse 9, he gives a description that it's the same description, the same type of features. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Ancient of Days is talking about God, okay? Whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, his body also was like burl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Let's talk a little bit about who's the Father, and I don't know that we'll get through this because we just have a few minutes, but I'd like to start. Thinking in the natural, a man becomes a dad when he and his wife begin having children. Conceiving conception, we're all adults, right? Okay. For your study, Father is Strong's number H1, Hebrew 1. And it means Father in literal, in immediate sense, and you can compare the names Abi, A-B-I. Uh, just as a study note, I threw this in there because I thought it was pretty interesting. The name Abi, A-B-I, means fatherly, and fatherly means resembling a father in affection or care. This can also be correlated to the writings of Paul, for he took those in the church as his own and called them his own, but they weren't his blood children. But he treated them as a father would, both in the natural and spiritually. But in the context of H1 Father, where it says, compare names Abi, A-B-I, this is because each person's name that starts with A-B-I means father and then the meaning of the latter part of the word. Example, 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 10, the name Abia, A-B-I-A, means father, that is, worshiper of Jah, Jah being God. Does that make sense? So anytime you say a name in the Old Testament that's A-B-I something, it's father something. There's that correlation there. So back on track for who is the father. Now, Jesus was pretty stern regarding who should be called father. He commanded in St. Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, and call no man father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Now, you notice the words on the screen. Do we have that one up there? We don't have that one, do we, Brother Gary? Okay. So on the sheet of paper, 
It says, call no man father, lowercase f, for one is your father, uppercase f, which is in heaven. You see the difference there? So this brings a distinction. And for unity and consistency, one is a title, capital F, and one is talking about a father in the natural, okay? So did you know the very first time father is used with an uppercase F, which is a title, was when speaking of Jesus and declaring that Jesus is the everlasting father. This is a common scripture quoted around Christmas, but it's really for all times and seasons. As we read, let's keep this in mind. What is capitalized for this helps understand if it's a person's name or title, etc. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and to unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And folks, we could spend hours dissecting this scripture because there's a, so much to minister just on this one verse. But I'm going to give you a little bit of detail, and I know we're at time to, close to time to stop. In the Old Testament, 1,430 times the word father or a variation of the word father is used in the Old Testament. Every Old Testament scripture, the entire Old Testament, has lowercase f for father except this one scripture and only this one scripture. That's a oneness scripture. That's a oneness message to each of us. Um there are many scriptures that have God as our father, but these are never with a title, father, uppercase. Example, Psalms chapter 89, verse 26. He shall cry unto me, thou art my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. New Testament has father capitalized around 267 times. So I just got a couple lines and we'll stop here. It's clear from the prophet Isaiah that Jesus is the father. Any objections to that? Pretty clear. And Jesus commanded to not call anyone at all Father except God. And this means rightly dividing the word that Jesus is the one and only Father of all that is. Does this make sense? Okay, we're going to stop there. I know we're at time. And um, is any of that new news to you? Well, in the study of this, that was the first time I ever realized that that was the only scripture in the entire Old Testament that was uppercase F. I never saw that until I started studying for this series, and that brought revelation to me. And maybe I'm the only one who did not know that. Maybe all of you already knew that. Uh, chapter 9, verse 6. So let's pray. We will meet back here next Wednesday, and we'll pick up uh, right where we left off.